It's time to open up the borders. This is the Open Economy Basic Concepts for Macroeconomics coming to you from home to wherever you are. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the economic ride. So up to now, except for when we learned how to calculate GDP, we've kept the economy, the model, and the simple way of excluding international trade and monetary flows. For some, this may have actually been more complicated because you'd want to keep those things in mind. But in reality, it actually simplifies the problem. So a lot of the concepts we're going to see today relate to other concepts that have been seen so far in this class. But let's just get some of the basics out of the way. So a closed economy, what we treat as a closed economy is an economy that does not interact with other economies in the world. Therefore, there is no exports, there is no imports, and there is no monetary flows. An open economy, on the other hand, is something as what we currently see is we have a situation where uh, we trade with other countries in terms of exports and imports and also in terms of monetary flows. And microeconomics, if you've done it or if you're doing it in the future, you'll see that trade, when you specialize in trade and you produce what you have comparative advantage in, always leads to a situation where it's beneficial by all to specialize in trade. But that's the topic of another discussion. So international flows doesn't mean that net exports will be different than zero. So let's just remember what net exports is. Net exports is exports minus imports. So it is possible for us to have net exports is equal to zero, but still have some level of trade. If you were to look at the graph that relates to exports and imports of Canada with the US, you could see that over time, the level of exports and imports have been relatively similar in quantity and value. So if it's similar in quantity, let's say it's the same number, well, if you take one minus the other, and we're dealing with a certain amount of billion in, in either case, well, you have a situation where uh, it pretty much evens out, so net exports is equal to zero. But that does not mean when net exports is equal to zero that exports and imports is equal to zero. That is possible, but it's not usually the case. When you have open borders, you'll always have some level of trading. Otherwise, when you trade, you could either have a trade surplus or a trade deficit. So if we think of the US relative to China, they operate in a trade deficit, which means that they are importing more from China than China is importing from the US or the US is exporting to China. So that's a situation of a trade deficit. So throughout the different players in the economy, we might have trade deficits with some countries, trade surpluses with other countries and balanced trade with uh, other countries such as Canada, US is close to balanced trade over time. So how does this whole trade imbalance situation work? Because if you think about it, if one country is exporting more in value than the other country, there must be something going on here. So the way I like to think about this is if you're at, a, I don't know, like a, a flea market or anything else and you're about to do a trade with someone else, 
and you have a certain things that you're bringing to the table to sell. You have a computer, an old computer, some clothing and different accessories. And from this other person, you want to buy something else. And it may be that when you go to make the trade, uh, everything balances out in terms of how you value those products and how the other person values the product. And you think, oh, this is a fair trade and you just swap and you're done. Well, what would happen if there's an imbalance between the two values? So if I say the goods that I'm bringing to the table, I say it's worth 150. And the goods that you're bringing to the table is only worth 100. Well, what can happen from there? Well, if I think about that simple example, well, I could keep looking around at your things and think, well, I guess I could get this keyboard and I could get this cup of coffee and I could get this uh, beanie and then you kind of add up all of those extra things that you get and then you're like okay we both kind of brought $150 worth of products to the table therefore we're even Steven and uh, we'll call it a day and we'll just be happy with this trade so if you have a traded surplus where you are exporting more than you're importing well one way to kind of close this gap potentially is just to say well i'll import more and then we'll have balanced trade but what else can we do like if i look around at your things and i'm just not interested well what are the other mechanisms that are possible well you could say i'll give you this amount of bonds this amount of land this amount of money to compensate for the difference so then we're no longer talking about a trade in goods but we're talking about a trade in capital we could say capital goods land bonds money are all seen as capital goods so as i'm giving you more value of goods in exchange you're giving me more value in assets so it's as if i was buying foreign assets in this period like it's as if i i'm acquiring foreign assets so when I have positive net exports, and this is where it gets confusing for some people, when I have positive net exports, we will see that there's this identity that net exports is equal to the net capital outflow. So here, it's not money that's flowing out of my pockets. I've brought more value to the table. It's as if, as I bring more value in terms of goods, this person's getting more goods. He's getting more imports and exports. I'm providing more exports than imports. Um, but at the same time, he's giving me land or bonds or something else. So it's as if I was buying foreign capital. So as soon as there's net exports, there's a net capital outflow. But that net capital outflow is Canadians or this person acquiring more of these capital goods from the other person. Uh, there's other things that can have an influence on net capital outflow than just net exports on its own. And we'll talk more about this later on but uh, the other aspects that can have an impact on the flow of money between countries is what's the real interest rate being paid on foreign assets versus domestic assets and then perceived economic and political risk of holding assets abroad and there's also with that real interest rate the, the perception of what the inflation is going to be over that time period but overall in this whole thing what you have to remember if there's something you might not remember the justification so much but what you have to remember is that net capital outflow has to be equal to net exports so if i go back to that situation that i decided to get like 50 dollars worth more of goods 
and in the end we had balance trade and we call it even Steven. Well, in that case, there was no flow of money or capital goods because we had an equal amount of purchases and selling, exports and imports. Therefore, net exports was equal to zero, even though some trade occurred. Therefore, net capital outflow is zero. Like there's no one of the two that gains more capital goods from the other person. Once again, there could be a trade in capital goods, but the net amount has to be zero if net exports is zero. So once you have that information, uh, you could start playing around with it. So if we encounter a budget surplus or trade surplus, what do we expect? Well, as we're exporting more, we expect to be buying more foreign assets or receiving more foreign assets. So that would be a situation where our savings in terms of net capital outflow is greater than our investment. And here to kind of visualize that idea of savings investment, which will be kind of illustrated a few times as we go, it's that whole idea that the public and private saving by Canadians has to be superior than domestic investment for there to be possibility of having a net capital outflow. So in this case, when we have a trade surplus, that means that we're saving more than we're investing. And typically the flip side, the trade deficit, is a situation where uh, we're sending less things abroad than we're, buy uh, than, uh, we're buying from them, and therefore they're acquiring more of our assets, which is the typical case between US and China. So they export less, China is getting more and more foreign assets, treasury bills, a lot of the American debt is owned by China and Japan. And it's because of a situation where there's a lot of spending going on in the US and not much savings. So they're kind of taking advantage of foreign money coming in. Once we've looked at trade flows, we could start understanding how the value of a currency can change over time. And that's gonna be covered in the next chapter. But in this chapter here, we still wanna see how can we represent the value of a currency? And we'll see with time that as you print more money and you create a lot of inflation, it means that everything becomes more costly in your country. But it's not true to think that you could print a lot of money, make things more costly here, but still have access to a lot of foreign goods. Because as there's a lot of inflation, we've seen historically every time there's a lot of inflation, the value of that currency also drops by foreigners. Therefore, you can't just say, oh, we'll print a lot of money, things will be more expensive here, that's fine. We'll just keep on buying foreign goods, assuming the exchange rate doesn't change. That's not true. So how do we measure currency? So if ever you go on xe.com, you could look at the value of different currencies uh, and track them, and it constantly gets refreshed because it's something that's very dynamic. It's constantly evolving. If you look at the news any night, and uh, they'll often talk about like the value of the Canadian currency relative to the US dollar and it changes every day like there's not a single day where it hasn't changed some days it changes by more but it always changes and how is this currency represented well it's either one of two ways and you just have to kind of see this and understand it uh, but there's one way that is how many Canadian dollars are required to buy one US dollar. So if the Canadian dollar is worth less, 
in uh, nominal terms in the U.S. Well, that would mean that we require more than a Canadian dollar to obtain a U.S. dollar. So let's say, just for illustrative purposes, we require one dollar thirty Canadian to obtain one U.S. dollar. And then afterwards, you could ask yourself, well, what would it be? How many U.S. dollars could I obtain with only one Canadian dollar? So I'm not interested in obtaining one U.S. dollar. I'm interested in giving one Canadian dollar, and I want to see how much I could get in exchange. Well, naturally, if it costs you $1.30 Canadian to get one U.S. dollar, if you have $1 Canadian, that's less than $1.30. So you're going to get less than an American dollar if the exchange rate is the, the same. It's the same day. It's just two different ways of representing it. And how do you obtain that other amount? Well, it's essentially just the inverse of that first amount. So what is the inverse? So if you were to set it up in a, in a calculation on your calculator or in an equation form, uh, a fractional form, well, you'd have 1 over whatever the amount that you had was. So 1 over 1.3. And 1 over is 1 divided by 1.3. So if you were to punch that into a calculator, you could see what the inverse is. So if I just calculate it really quickly here, I see that it's 0.7692 and, and some change. So if we can get one uh, American dollar, uh, for one American dollar, we have to pay a dollar thirty Canadian. Well, for one Canadian dollar, we could get 77 cents, roughly speaking, US. So that's just an easy way to see it. Uh, so that's represented either one of those two ways. And if you go traveling, you'll often see two different amounts uh, when you go to a currency exchange location. And when you see those two different amounts, we're talking about a different thing. Because here, when we're talking about XZ.com, they're giving you like the, the straight up, what's the value of the Canadian dollar with respect to the US dollar. But for you to get that rate, you'd have to find someone who's willing to trade at that level. But when you go through a bank or a different kind of service, they're the one that's acting with you. You're not finding a person that wants to come to Canada as you want to go to their country and you guys are transacting at the current rate. That would be the best situation because then he can get as many Canadian dollars for his currency and you could get as many uh, euros for your Canadian dollar. But in reality, when you go through a bank, you're kind of paying for a service. So when you see those two different prices, you'll often see buy and sell. So if you go on foreign exchange, a national bank or anything, any other website, you'll often see like two different rates. Like for this specific day, national bank buys U.S. dollar at this rate, sells U.S. dollar at this rate. Well, the spread between those is what we could call the bid-ask spread, which is the difference between the buying and the selling price. So even though it's two different amounts, here we're talking about the same thing. So it could be how much uh, U.S. dollars you get per Canadian dollar. So if you want to buy U.S., you have to give more Canadian in exchange of a U.S. dollar. And if you're selling the U.S., they'll give you less Canadian per U.S. dollar. And the reason they do that is they're trying to make a profit out of it. Like uh, between the time that you go to sell them U.S. and that then they could take that U.S. dollar and sell it to someone else, well, the value of the currency is changing. They want to make sure that by the time that they actually sell it, that they're not losing value. If they're always giving the current rate, it would be possible for them to lose money. So if they're not trading the currency often, they'll create a bigger spread. And sometimes there'll be a tighter spread if this kind of currency gets exchanged a lot. So you normally the spread with the U.S. dollar will be smaller in relative terms than 
other countries that are just not typically traded. So that's the kind of situation that you encounter and sometimes you'll realize with the traveling that it might just be better off getting your currency of the other country at an ATM or something else in that country. And if you do so, quick hint, if you have the option of locking in a current rate when you go to get your money out, they'll say like you could take this money out in foreign currency or you could get this exchange rate. Typically, when they say that, that's an extra service that they're offering and your bank offers you a better rate than that. Just say you want the foreign currency. Don't lock it in because often it will be worse. I traveled with my girlfriend to New Zealand and we took out about $500 each and it cost her 50 Canadian dollars more for that same $500 than me because she went for the kind of like uh, fixed rate, pre-approved fixed rate. And the last kind of topic that's covered in this chapter here revolves around real exchange rates, purchasing power parity, and uh, the whole value of different currencies. The problem that typically happens is that people have an impression that because a certain currency is worth more in nominal terms, so let's say you can get a dollar thirty Canadian for every American dollar, therefore they're dollars more powerful in a certain way they think that they have more purchasing power and it's just worth more than our currency well that's false because you have to compare the value of the different goods in the different countries and this is where the real exchange rate comes in and i think the error from that idea of relative power and thinking that the us dollar is worth more and that they're in a better situation than we are is because we're so close to parity we're so close to like a one-to-one -one relationship because otherwise if you think of countries such as japan when i went to japan many years ago to for one canadian dollar i would get 100 japanese yen does that mean that here i could buy a certain thing with a canadian dollar and in japan i could buy a hundred of those units no it just means that, yes, I could get more Japanese yen, but then afterwards, how much does the equivalent uh, food or milk or whatever else cost there versus here? And if here it's $3 and over there it's 300 Japanese yen, well, it's the same cost because those $3 would convert to 300 yen. And in the end, I'm spending the same amount of my savings to be able to purchase uh, the good in one country or the other. But because we're so close to the U.S., some people have the impression that if you have an American coming over here, they just could purchase a whole lot more. It's true that for $100, they can purchase 130 Canadian dollars worth of goods. But maybe there's this good that you're looking at that costs 130 in Canada and 100 in the U.S. And in that specific case, whether you buy it in Canada or the U.S., doesn't change anything. There's not one country that has more purchasing power in the sense that they can buy so much more in the other country. Some countries do, uh, but don't just look at the nominal values of the currencies because otherwise it's going to be misleading. You have to look at the nominal exchange rate, but then you have to convert it to the real. And the whole process of doing this is by comparing the price in both countries. Another way to see this is an example I always do in my classes is to look at any good that you could find that has a price for Canada and US. So two different websites. So you could go on the Apple website, you could go on any other kind of website that sells the same good in both countries. 
and then you could find what the exchange rate is for that day and ask yourself if I were to buy an iPhone or anything else tomorrow where would it be cheaper to buy it and here I could just kind of ignore taxes for a second and you could look at it and in most cases it's going to be pretty much the same price and in some cases it's going to be a little bit more expensive in one place or a little more expensive in the other and the whole idea here with Apple if they release a product typically on release date uh, it's going to be very close to the same price everywhere but if you have an iPhone that gets typically released like in September and we're in March well over the course of this time the prices in the two locations haven't changed unless there's really dramatic shifts in the value of the currency typically they won't readjust the value of or the price of their phones in the whole year and in this process it's possible that the Canadian value has dropped dramatically and therefore it just becomes much more cheaper to buy in Canada than in the US because Canadian value dropped the Americans could get more Canadian currency and all of a sudden it's just so much cheaper to come over the border and to buy that good but the opposite is also true it could be possible that the Canadian currency has gained value over this period and actually it is cheaper to buy this specific good in the states I've shopped for a lot of big ticket items over the years and I've often been surprised that goods can be cheaper in Canada. They're not always cheaper in the U.S. And some goods are cheaper in the U.S., some goods are much cheaper in Canada. So it's, it ranges. And I'd suggest you guys to kind of look through this. But if you were to look at the real exchange rate, what you're trying to find is you're trying to find, well, for one coffee here, the cost of one coffee here, how many coffees could get, I get in another country? And that's the more important part when you're talking about purchasing power. If I had a, like $5,000 accumulated and I decide to go traveling, well, could I buy more goods with that $5,000 converted to another currency somewhere else? So could I last longer? Could I live longer, uh, shelter and food and everything else that I need to survive? Is it cheaper for me to live in Indonesia for six months than to live in Canada or to live in Sweden? Or somewhere else and yes on that aspect you'll see that it is cheaper sometimes to uh, live in certain countries relative to others but don't think just based on a nominal exchange rate because sometimes you'll travel to certain countries and one Canadian dollar could get you 20,000 of that currency it doesn't mean that things are like 20,000 times cheaper over there you can buy 20,000 times more of their goods yeah so that's the big idea there and then if you have purchasing power parity, that means that you have a situation where you have one price uh, or one, it's the same cost in all of the countries or that law of one price. And market forces bring us towards purchasing power parity, but there's just certain markets that are just so small that you don't attain purchasing power parity. And these would be based also on items that are easily tradable. If you think of a haircut or a massage, obviously a massage could be a lot cheaper in Indonesia than North America but you can't just say oh I feel like an Indonesian massage tonight and and import it you, that kind of good is not importable but if you think about foods or other things that could be imported well in that case there's more of this purchasing parity that happens so especially when when it's really easy to trade or it's big ticket items that are just easy to transport in those situations it's going to have relatively the same price around the world 
I love photography. I love uh, the whole kind of electronics around it. And when I travel, I often look at the price of various lenses in different countries. And I'm always amazed how, regardless of which country I'm in, a Canon or a Sony lens is pretty much the exact same price converted to Canadian dollar. And it's just because it's an easily traded but good and the company that's producing it doesn't necessarily want to sell it cheaper in a poor country. It's That's the price it is and that's the price they charge everywhere. So they kind of convert it to whatever country that we're in. So just different concepts to keep in mind. And at the end of the day, uh, if a lot of inflation hits, the value of our currency will change. And uh, there's a little bit more discussions in the notes that you can look through in the videos or in the notes. But I'll leave it to that for this podcast today. Hope you guys enjoyed it and I'll uh, talk to you soon.